Well, I heard some cheers, but they were they were very sparse. And I heard a lot of boos. And I said, wow, what did I do? Why are they booing me? You know, what did I do wrong, as they say? They had never heard anything like it. You just leave the Star-Spangled Banner alone. It's disgusting. They were angry and offended. It was a desecration to hear it sung that way. It was 1968. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were assassinated. 300 American soldiers were being killed each week in Vietnam, and protesters were beaten near the Democratic National Convention. In that wrenching year, the nation needed a timeout. Hi, everybody. Kurt Gowdy of NBC Sports with George Kell, the telecaster of the Detroit Tigers. Once again, roaming... The 1968 World Series would provide that break. 53,000 fans jammed Tiger Stadium in Detroit. Their team trailed the Cardinals three games to one. Before the first pitch of game five, they removed their hats and rose from their seats. What they heard next was the most familiar song in America, but it was sung in a most unfamiliar way. I'm Roger Weber. Welcome to Mismatch, stories of the incompatible, the unsuitable, and the out of step. This mismatch is between what people expected the anthem to sound like and what 23-year-old Jose Feliciano thought it should sound like. The furor would lead to fascinating twists, a marriage, a spine-tingling curtain call, and Feliciano's new place in American history. Let's begin by going back to pre-1968. Jose Feliciano's life began in Puerto Rico with a complication. Congenital glaucoma left him blind at birth. Five years later, he moved with his family to New York City. He learned to play the accordion and then mastered a $10 Stella guitar. It took me a while to learn to play it because I taught myself, but I was uh, listening to Frankie Lyman in the Teenagers. Why do fools fall in love? Dion in the Belmonts. Each night I ask the stars above. I listen to Ray Charles, of course. Now, baby, when you sigh, I want to sigh with you. And um, that's what I grew up listening to. How many hours a day would you spend practicing on that guitar? 14 hours. And mind you, the hours were spread out. I couldn't. But when I would get home from school, that's why I went to the guitar immediately. And I tuned into American Bandstand. And I would play with whatever records they played at that time. He started playing coffee houses in Greenwich Village, then clubs around the country. In 1968, his version of The Doors' Light My Fire rocketed to number three on the charts. He had won two Grammys by the time he received a fateful invitation, described in this video by the Detroit Free Press. Then I heard about this young Puerto Rican blind who had uh, 
burst on the scene. He had a big hit with uh, covering the Morrisons, uh, uh, Light My Fire, and... Uh, Ernie Harwell was the Tigers' radio announcer, as well as an amateur songwriter. His general manager, Jim Campbell, figured Harwell would be a natural to recruit the anthem singers for the World Series. I was doing a show in Vegas, and uh, I, think, I think I had opened for Frank Sinatra. I had to go from Vegas. I didn't know who was going to meet us at the airport, but it happened that Ernie Harwell met us at the airport. I got to Detroit. I went to the hotel, freshened up a bit, and then I came downstairs and I went with Ernie to Tiger Stadium. The anthem had gone according to plan in games three and four, first singer Margaret Whiting, then Motown star Marvin Gaye. And it was a little ironic that the Campbell went to me and said, now, would you please talk to Marvin and ask him not to give too much of a soul rendition of Motown touch to the national anthem. So I did, and he said, yeah, I'll sing it straight. It's hard to believe that this is Marvin Gaye. Did Ernie Harwell ever ask you to sing the anthem straight? No. So no. You, you were free to do it the way you wanted. Exactly. He never talked. He didn't have a chance to talk to me, which I'm glad of. Because <laughs> uh, if I'm told not to do something, I'll I'll do it anyway. How much time did you have to work on your version of the anthem? I had been working on a version of the anthem, oh, at least a year before that, but it was totally radical and different than what I did. I had more or less an R&B feel to it. And I said, well, Jose, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be so radical and do it a little bit easier for them to listen to and know that you weren't messing around with the anthem. Feliciano walked with his service dog to center field, settled onto a stool, and cradled his guitar. He must have been the only person there who thought his version of the anthem had been toned down. Major League Baseball players are the most experienced national anthem listeners. If you add up regular season and exhibition games, and maybe postseason play, a guy with a 10-year career would hear the anthem 2,000 times. This anthem hit Tiger pitcher John Hiller like a thunderbolt. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah, it came out of nowhere, you know. We weren't expecting anything different, you know, so. Then we said, oh my God, Ernie, what did you do? I mean, no, nobody even raised a voice back then, you know. It was so standard, straight, and... Fellow pitcher John Warden was standing near Hiller on the third baseline. Holy cow, what's that? You know, what's he doing? And everybody's looking around at each other, and and you can hear the fans just sort of, you hear that background rumble of the fans. You know, just, and they said the switchboards were like, boop, you know, just lighting up, up at the stadium. For the land and for the free and the home.
Well, I heard some cheers, but they were they were very sparse, and I heard a lot of boos, and I said, "Wow, what did I do? Why are they booing me?" You know. When did you really get in, uh, the idea that there was a controversy? Well, when I went to my seat, because I, I watched a couple of innings. I had to head back to the airport and back to Las Vegas. I I was thinking to myself, wow, what did I do? And Tony Kubek, who was the broadcaster then, came to me and said, you've caused some commotion here. The phones for NBC at the network have been ringing. Some callers branded Ernie Harwell a communist, even though he had Marine service in his past and the Baseball Hall of Fame in his future. And the American Legion and all the service clubs passed resolutions that everybody had to sing it right on note. And, and they got all kind of letters. I almost got fired because of that. One of the critics, opera star Robert Merrill, had performed the anthem hundreds of times for the New York Yankees. He said of Feliciano, when I heard him do it, I felt sick. He completely destroyed the melodic line. You can't make your own interpretation. But 14-year-old Detroiter Susan O'Millian loved hearing a new sound for the same old anthem. I was in class, did not hear it live that afternoon. On the way home, I heard that something had happened at the ballpark, you know. People were talking on the streets, on the porches along the way. And um, when I got home, normal evening, during the news, I happened to pass the television set and there's Huntley and Brinkley talking about a disturbance, a commotion at Tiger Stadium. And then they showed a clip of uh, this this guy uh, playing the guitar and singing the anthem as I'd never heard, as no one had ever heard. And it was like, wow, this is cool. What did you do next? Well, you know, there was so much negativity that I thought was unnecessary, uncalled for, un unfair, that... Um, I don't know, a 14-year-old, what do they do? Back in those days, if you're me, you start a fan club. We ultimately had a chapter in England and in Australia and South Australia and Poland and Japan. Jose Feliciano already had plenty of fans, but post-anthem, he also felt like he had enemies. Uh, yeah, sure, they wanted to deport me, you know, but you can't deport uh, a citizen of the United States. And Puerto Rico's a protectorate of ours. And, uh, and I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't deported. But it was funny to me. I thought, where the hell am I going to go? He wonders whether some of the outrage sprang from what fans saw as well as what they heard. People have been complaining, how dare this hippie because they didn't know either that I was blind, because I, I don't conduct myself that way. So you were out there with sunglasses and kind of yeah. long hair. Yeah. And I had my guitar. That, you know, they thought, oh, shit, he's playing a guitar. That, That's very hippie-ish, you know. But <clears throat> I played my guitar, and I was proud, because my guitar has been my orchestra all my life. Why, uh, did you, why did you sing the anthem the way you did? Because I was sick and tired of hearing it the old way and the audience kind of not being into it. Um, the audience couldn't wait 
till whoever it was, whether it be Robert Merrill or who knows, uh, you know, get to the end of the song and the audience would start clapping as if to say, thank God this thing is passed. <laughs> and I got tired of that. I did. I really, really did. And I said, I'll fix it. You sure did. Well, it fixed me for a while. You know, my records were stopped. People uh, at, at radio stations stopped playing my records. When we come back, fast forward 50 years, Jose Feliciano's and America's remarkable anthem journey. What made the melody to our national anthem so sacred, so set in stone? What Key put into words was this incredible sense of relief that, oh my gosh, the flag is still there. The first word. Dr. David Hildebrand is director of the Colonial Music Institute and a leading expert on the history of the anthem. He wants to set the record straight about this guy named Francis Scott Key. Uh, I think many historians and many Americans have long believed the mythology that Key wrote a poem that was later set to music, and that is clearly not the case. Nope. Francis Scott Key, like many other Americans, had long been familiar with a tune called the Anacreontic Song. It was written in England for a gentleman's club known for celebrating wine and women. By 1805, he was practicing law in Georgetown, and this naval hero, an American hero from the Barbary Wars, returned back to America. And at that time, at a dinner, Key wrote his first setting of new words to the Anacreontic tune, which Key sang at a dinner almost a decade before the Rockets' Red Glare. In 1814, Key sailed on Chesapeake Bay under a flag of truce. He boarded a British warship to negotiate the release of an American prisoner. Key himself was never made prisoner, by the way. That's a myth. But once the British said, yes, you can have your guy back, um, they said, however, you can go back to your ship, but you need to stay with us so that you can't sail back to shore and tell everybody we're coming. When the Brits opened fire on Fort McHenry, Key would have seen the bombs bursting in air, but probably not the broad stripes and bright stars. He was viewing at some distance. He probably really couldn't see the flag, uh, either flag, by night or by day until he sailed back in closer a couple days after. A newspaper printed a thousand copies of Key's song called Defense of Fort McHenry. Dr. Hildebrand believes the jubilant people of Baltimore would have soon sung it on the streets. The song morphed a bit over the years. I mean, for instance, when the melody was first published, the melody to the drinking song back in 1779, it begins at the bottom of the scale. To Anacreon in heaven, where he sat in full glee. In other words, da-da-da-da-dum. We're used to it kind of the other way, where there's that introduction, da-da-da-da-da-dum, dropping down kind of from the middle of the uh, scale. And... You know, there are other changes that took place over time. In 1917, a committee that included famed band leader John Philip Sousa worked to resolve conflicting versions. We had no officially sanctioned anthem designation until 1931. That's how long it took for the government to, to pass a bill and for the president to sign it. If I had not been blind, I think I would have been a ball player. I love to hit. It's September 8th, 2018. 
Jose Feliciano was in Detroit to sing the anthem again for the Tigers' 50th reunion. Before going to the ballpark, he meets fans in a crowded room at the Detroit Historical Museum. He takes questions from sports historian Bill Dow. They sit below a huge neon sign reading Tiger Stadium. It used to be perched on top of the old ballpark. The rendition you did, which is so soulful and so beautiful, and it's hard to believe that it was controversial, what was your thought when you were going to sing that uh, and your interpretation of it? What went into that in, in your well, thoughts? Well, I think I felt in some ways like a shortstop who had made a terrible throwing error. Um, you know, uh, I wasn't complaining about the country. Uh, I wasn't saying that uh, the anthem was wrong in any way. I was expressing the fact of how proud I felt, and I still do, to be an American from Puerto Rico, to be a Puerto Rican American uh, and amount to something, uh, and that I had a job to keep me busy, that I didn't have to sell newspapers or make um, uh, baskets or that kind of thing. You know, people have come up to me and say, Don't, aren't you angry at God for the fact that you were born blind and all that. I said, no, uh, not really. Not when I think of all of the great gifts that God has given me. He put a guitar in my hand and said, okay, I've helped you this far. Go help yourself. And so I went out there and I didn't worry about being blind on those kind of things. I thought to myself, you know, if I do marry, I was going to marry a blind woman to save on the electric bill. <laughs> but, but you know what? That didn't happen, so. The woman he married is in the front row. She dabs a tear when her husband improvises a serenade. She will think, of course, I'm crazy. Sometimes I know she thinks I'm lazy. But I do what I do do what I do and everything I do, Susan, I do it for you. All for who? I do it for you. Before the break, you heard from the teenager who started Jose's fan club, Susan O'Million. Same Susan. She met Jose several years after his historic anthem performance. By the end of the week, he was having dinner at my house, and we went to Bobolo, and uh, he was- The amusement park. The amusement park. Um, and my, my dad was in the hospital at the time, and so um, he wanted to, to visit him. So he, he brought a guitar and, and uh, gave him a little, little concert at, uh, at the hospital. And now you fell head over heels in love with this guy. I did. I did. How long have you been married? <laughs> 36 years. We married on our 11th anniversary of having become friends 47 years ago. We married on the day we met, 11 years later. They have three children. Aging tigers emerge from convertibles at Comerica Park and slowly walk to a stage near second base. Fans cheer their heroes of 50 years ago. Al Kaline, Denny McLean, Willie Horton, and Mickey Lolich. He pitched three complete game victories, including game five. 
Lolich says Feliciano's anthem nearly kept that from happening. Maybe it was the length of the performance, maybe it was the place in the pregame schedule, but the left-hander says he wasn't warmed up when the umpire told him to take the mound. I says, I haven't even thrown a breaking ball yet. And he says, well, you got to get on the mound. I says, what for? I mean, he says, national TV. We have to be ready for national TV. And you were roughed up in the early going of I game gave, five. I gave up a home run in the first inning, and then the score was three to nothing. I mean, I wasn't ready to pitch. You know, I, I've thought about it over the years. I don't want to blame it on Feliciano. Sometimes I want but Lola settled down, mastered his curveball, and led the Tigers to a come-from-behind win. Feliciano made his own comeback after the anthem briefly derailed his career. He's earned over 45 gold or platinum records and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Now, for his curtain call, he wears a Tiger jersey with Feliciano 68 on the back. I understand. I've made my peace with the people because uh, they've been so, so nice to me, where, especially uh, for this event. What was it like for you to see him perform the anthem again 50 years later? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was a really important moment because it defined his life in such a negative way for so long. It was magnificent. I wanted my town to let him know how they really felt, how we all as a people really feel. I think we've grown since, since 1968. At the reunion, Feliciano didn't use the guitar from 1968. He donated it on Flag Day 2018 to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Please give Jose Feliciano a round of applause for his extraordinary contributions to our American culture. During the ceremony, 20 people from 17 nations took the oath of citizenship. Then, standing near the actual flag that flew over Fort McHenry the day after the bombing, Feliciano gave the new Americans a message. It was in his heart long before his World Series performance stirred up a hornet's nest that you are now embarking on a great adventure. You're in a country that allows you to be yourself, to use the talents that you have to not only better yourself, but better the country. This is a great country. There is no other country in the world like America. And I know because I've been almost all over the place. I welcome you all with open arms. And this is America. And America will always be great because of the people that come to it and make their home here. Thank you so much and congratulations. Thanks for listening. Mismatch is produced by Zach Rosen and written and narrated by me, Roger Weber. 
We have more information about Jose Feliciano and the anthem on our website, mismatchpodcast.com. You can learn more about David Hildebrand's work on the history of the anthem at www.colonialmusic.org. One more thing, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts if that's how you're hearing us. Thanks for listening to Mismatch. <laughs>